you go from evangelizing and selling and trying to get people to buy into your vision and help execute and realize your vision to you start to attract a certain critical mass of people, each of which you know, brings their own passion within their discipline to the seed of the idea that you had. And it evolves into something very different. And it grows and it just, it turns into something beyond what you could have imagined. And it's a hard thing to just let that happen. But I'm telling you, everything that I've been a part of that I think has been exceptional has been about those moments where incredibly talented people have been able to apply themselves and not just fulfill a role or do a job, but practice their craft. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Katie Kuffel, and as always, I'm joined by Brett Novak, Liquid and Grit CEO. And on today's episode, we had the chance to speak with Andrew Pascal. Andrew is currently the founder, chairman, and CEO of Play Studios and a veteran when it comes to the leisure entertainment and luxury hospitality industries, having spent over 25 years in the casino gaming world. Andrew unpacks his history in the industry, the people he met, and the opportunities he acted upon that led to the creation of Play Studios, and where he sees the company headed in the future. All on this episode of Creators at Work. I've always had a fascination with entrepreneurship. Grew up in the Bay Area, so I was in that environment where kind of bold thinkers with big ideas could just get on with it and create industries, let alone companies. And so I was always inspired by that. Uh, went to school, and when I got out of school, I, I really did not know what I wanted to focus on. And so I had interned in the summers for a casino in downtown Las Vegas called the Golden Nugget. And it was an amazing experience. You know, I was on a really cool rotation, and I got to see and learn a lot about the way those places work. And so when I got out of school, I, I kind of subscribed to the whole idea of, well, if I don't know exactly what I want to do, I better just start doing stuff and ruling things out. That's kind of how I got into the casino industry of, of all things. But I thought it was really cool. I mean, it didn't take long to realize that what was really neat about these casino properties, what they now refer to as integrated resorts, is that they are just that. They have about every imaginable industry integrated into one enterprise. Hotels and restaurants and entertainment and all the different service industries and the kind of general infrastructure in terms of accounting and finance and accounts payable and collections, and then all the things around marketing and merchandising that really drive the performance of these places. And so, you know, it, it didn't take me long to realize that it was just an amazing place to learn a lot. And I was there working at the Golden Nugget at a really important moment in the arc of Las Vegas, the very late 80s, approaching the 90s. And the 90s really when the modern day Las Vegas was established. And so, and it was brought about by the introduction of the Mirage. And the Mirage, as you might know, was really the catalyst for the whole renaissance that came about in Las Vegas through the 90s. I mean, it was this crazy idea. Steve Wynn had this idea of building a resort that had not only more capacity, but the integration of far more entertainment elements. And it wasn't just about the pure gambling experience. It was about offering this really holistic resort experience and destination before it opened, everyone thought it was destined to fail and it was wildly successful. And the paradigm and the model that the Mirage really proved out in that moment is generally what everybody has followed since. If you look programmatically, 
at all of the resorts that were built throughout the 90s. And even the one that's just about to open, Resorts World, programmatically, they generally follow what was the Mirage paradigm. So it was really groundbreaking. So, you know, here are these amazing entrepreneurs in a really vibrant market, building these crazy resorts. I mean, investing in these really fanciful places, big castles and pyramids and, you know, New York City skylines and tropical destinations. But the content of the industry was not really evolving. You could go to all these places and they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars but the games that people were engaging with weren't really evolving or advancing all that much. And that's what I was focused on. I felt like, wow, there's just a massive opportunity to evolve the content of this industry. And so I would met a really interesting collection of people being at the Mirage. One of the things that attracted a lot of people across the entertainment industries. And so I, I got exposure to some entrepreneurs from up in the Bay Area that had a history in traditional consumer gaming. And one of which was the principal, he was the inventor of Pong, a guy named Al Alcorn. Many credit him as being the father of the video game industry, right? And so he was just like, wow, I mean, to think that I could again help an industry evolve from being an analog industry into a digital industry, that's just like catching lightning in a bottle. Again, like that's our opportunity here. And he was a really captivating guy. And so he and, and the collection of people that he had partnered with that, that had the idea of uh, really focusing on the content of the industry, you know, was hard to resist. And so they invited me to join them in starting this company. And I was the link and the connection to the industry, the one that kind of had the market experience. And I didn't really know about product marketing or management as a discipline. I learned very quickly. I went home. I mean, I left I left my life in Las Vegas and I was on a pack. And I was like, you know, there's just too much momentum here in the market. And this is too exciting an opportunity. I want to get into a position where the consequences of my choices and actions uh, can be felt. If I make some bad decisions, we're all going to feel it. But if I make some good ones, we'll all be able to celebrate. So we started a company called Silicon Gaming. And it was at a time in the Valley where there was not an obvious new emerging theme or industry. And so we attracted amazing talent. It was really a special company and reinvented what is the slot machine. All of the slot machines of today are based on the model that we brought into the marketplace. So we leveraged for the first time, we, we tried to disintegrate the overall platform, all of which were vertically integrated and provided by these highly regulated casino, traditional casino gaming manufacturers. And we said, no, we want to leverage PC technology and we want to tap into great tools and the creative community in the Bay Area and build slot machines that felt more like television that you could wager on. And so we, we imported this really weird looking television to the 16 by nine aspect ratio, which nobody was familiar with back then. <laughs> and we, we kind of flipped it on its side in portrait mode with a, a giant touchscreen. And it was a multi-game platform with shared jackpots and, you know, just really rich deep game experiences with bonus events. And there wasn't an aspect of it that we didn't really push on in terms of reinventing what the paradigm was. And it was just an amazing collection of people all contributing really great thinking and, and looking at it as an opportunity to reinvent as we started out to the, the content of the industry. So we did that. It was super cool. We, we ultimately took that company public and launched that product and platform and patented a lot of the technologies and, and tools that we had developed. And it was ultimately acquired by IGT. IGT was at the time the dominant provider of slot machines to the industry. I mean, just a massive market share back then. And so they, you know, they really wanted to take advantage of a lot of the technologies that that we were employing and they they themselves you know really were motivated and inspired to 
reinvent their own platform and evolve their game content. And so it was a really great confluence of what we were doing and what they were doing. We, it, what's interesting is the time they bought the company, we had been incubating. There was this new channel of distribution that was emerging. And there were these companies operating out of these banana republics, taking advantage of offering up gambling content on what was called the internet. And so I'm dating myself remarkably in the first 10 minutes of this podcast, but it was, it was, it was amazing that, uh, you know, here were all these just wildly creative upstarts saying, let's go take advantage of this opportunity, you know, and, and the early benefactors of the internet were people that were focused on corner gambling, you know, and, and so for the people in the more traditional, I hate to say that, but it was true. And, and the people in the more traditional casino industry, which is highly regulated, were like, you know, this just doesn't seem fair. We can't take advantage of this opportunity. And, and so we thought, well, let's help them. Let's see if we can't define a path into the market that'll enable really well-established, credible gambling providers or consumer companies to go exploit this opportunity. And so we started a company called WagerWorks. And my, my co-founder in Play Studios, Paul Matthews, helped to put in place the regulatory regimes in Alderney and Isle of Man. And we were the first licensees in those markets. And so we built a platform and tools and tech to do everything from geolocation and identity verification and solve all those big thorny problems that people to this day, you know, those are the big challenges that have to be overcome if you want access to what is obviously a very big market in terms of interactive gambling. This is 20 years ago. We built that company and provided the platform and content tools to companies like Sky and Virgin and the Rank Group and Patty Power in Ireland and MGM, of course, here that was trying to go and exploit that market opportunity. And so you know, I'd like to think that we made an impression and an impact on that market. The fact that big established companies were coming into the market gave it added credibility that helped it evolve much faster, accelerate that evolution from something that was just opportunistic, you know, for really entrepreneurial people to a business that credible companies believed in and felt they could take advantage of. And there we were. So what was interesting is that time we sold the slot machine company to ITT, they didn't want anything to do with the internet because they thought it would just invite regulatory risk and exposure. And we convinced them this is a little hobby of ours. You know, we might dabble in this and do this next, not sure. And of course, we, we sold them that company too a couple of years later. So we basically sold them the same company twice. So that was a great experience. We'd learned a lot. You know, we had amazing successes and just extraordinary failures. Uh, but we learned a lot from them. The challenges of building products, particularly groundbreaking products, where you're just trying to shift and change what is the model that's widely accepted, but also how to build teams and companies and, and the kind of cultures that are enduring and that attract the kind of talent that you need in order to have a business that's going to continue to thrive and grow. You know, that was like a nine to 10 year run, those two companies. And it was in and around that time that the gentleman that I had worked for in the traditional casino industry said, look, I'm starting over. Uh, he had just sold his prior company. It was publicly traded, Win or Mirage Resorts to MGM and was starting what is now Win Resorts. And he said, would you like to come and help me out? And I had some other colleagues that I'd worked with previously who are actually a part of Play Studios now that were already inside that company. And they're like, come on, this could be cool. And so I signed up and went through the, the whole startup cycle with what was Win Resorts. And you know, just had broken ground in Las Vegas on what is the Win and Encore campus and effectively brought so much of the discipline of product management to uh, designing a resort 
And so they basically put me in charge of the guest experience and really thinking about how to evolve the way in which technology is leveraged to enable delivering a higher level of service. And let's define what that service experience is. And, you know, to the credit of the group that was there, Steve and Elaine Wynn and, and other people that were longstanding operators in the industry, they were like, look, you know, we don't want to use technology to somehow displace people. We, we want to use it in a way that enables them to develop a deeper connection to the people that they're serving. And so that was the fundamental idea of the technology platform that we put in place, which was literally the integration of over 70 discrete systems into a resort platform that gave you a holistic view of a guest and all the things that they're participating in and being able to really craft and elevate the experience that they're going to receive. And then as they increase their visitation and frequency of staying with you, you learn more about them and you can begin to tailor the experience ever more to really suit them and what you know about them. You know, they don't want to leave because they feel like this is their place. When they show up, it's like everything from the monogram pillows to their favorite wine in the restaurant. You got it all dialed in. I ultimately became the president and the chief operating officer of, of the resort complex. And we went through just extraordinary growth and it was just an amazing, amazing experience. You know, towards the end of my stint there, you know, I, I was watching the emergence of, you know, again, new channels of distribution for content, um, most notably Facebook and the fact that, you know, the thing that seemed to be driving the adoption of Facebook back in, you know, 2009 and 10, 11 was people engaging in play and, my co-founders, Paul Matthews and Katie Bolish, who I know you have a history with, they were saying, like everything we've done up until this moment is preparing us for this. Look at the games that people are playing and think about what we could bring to this channel. And so we, we kind of huddled up and came up with the idea of what is my Vegas. We really looked at the dynamics of the market at the time and the participants in it. If you recall, Zynga. Zynga had this reputation of being uh, pretty ruthless. You know, they wanted to dominate every category that they were in. And it really affected our thinking. And, and so we were like, look, we can't just come into this category with, you know, ported slot machines. Like, we, we need to come with a completely different proposition that's hard to do and is going to be defensible over time. And so we're like, okay, well, what are the unique strategic assets that we have access to or that we can control that we can apply to our solution? You know, let's leverage the relationships we have in the industry and go get the rights to the brands. So if we can control most of the iconic brands that make up the Las Vegas Strip, well, then we can deliver this more authentic expression of what Las Vegas is. And then let's do a version of Las Vegas that really parallels what it is, not just games that people play. It's as you play and engage in those games, this world of services starts to reveal itself to you, most of which people are just clueless about. They don't even know they exist. And so this notion of incorporating a loyalty program as part of the architecture of the game experience, coupled with real world brands, we felt, okay, now that's, that's a space and a position that will resonate with the consumer and that we can own and that hopefully will be defensible and enduring over time. So we teamed back up um, and beyond Katie and Paul, who you know date back to Silicon Gaming. Uh, our creative co-founder was a gentleman named Nicholas Koenig, also 
worked with us at Silicon Gaming. And then what was funny is, is we said, look, we, you know, we just got to get smarter about this industry. What do we know about social gaming? We decided we were going to go to the Game Developers Conference. I remember when it was down in San Jose and, you know, you'd be lucky if you got a few hundred people to attend. And so we showed up and, and we like looked at the curriculum, you know, all the different symposiums and forums that were offered. And we, I'm going to go this, I'm going to focus on user acquisition. I'm going to focus on monetization. Hey's going to go focus on experience. And it was like, after a couple hours, we'd regroup and we're like, our heads were exploding. We're like, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> this is just so inspiring. And like, we're so stimulated. And, and then I remember I, I sat in on one symposium monetization forum and I got exposure to one of the panelists was this guy named Monty Kerr. And Monty was talking about the different aspects of monetization and, and practices that they were employing at the company where he was at the time. I was like, okay, this guy is super bright and he's a free thinker and I, I need to connect with this guy. And so after the forum, I, I tried to get access to him, but you know, as is often the case, there were a bunch of people gathered around the people that were on the panel. And I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll look him up. I'll find him later. And I went out into the lobby area and I was and debriefing with Paul about the experience I just had. And this guy that I got exposure to, and where I'm like, we're going to go find this guy. And with that, out comes walking Monty, and he's walking by us. And I said, hey, Monty. And he looked at me, he's like, do I know you? I'm like, no, 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 come over here. And so we started to engage and talk to Monty. I'm like, look, you know, and introduced ourselves and our history. And, you know, we started a company way back when called Silicon Gaming. And now she goes, oh my God, are you kidding me? Man, we copied all your stuff. And as it turns out, he was one of those gray market operators in the casino industry when we did wager work. He's like, we just copied everything you did. And we knew that you were going to be slower to the market. And so we kind of hit it off. And he had a partner of his that, you know, he had collaborated with for years and years, a technical partner. And so as a group, you know, just Felt right. Uh, strategic vision, great product sensibilities, amazing creative capacity, clear understanding of the potential regulatory complexities given the model that we were pursuing, which was to deliver real world value. And that was that was the genesis of uh, how Play Studios was kind of ultimately born. So there we were. We were like, okay, well, this is a great opportunity, you know, great founding group through my relationship. Uh, with the two people that ran MGM Resorts, we were able to get a commercial deal without even yet having a company, really. And they basically said, sure, you can take the brands and we'll support you with the execution of this loyalty program. And I was talking about, look, I'm going to need a lot of inventory because like coming into the market with the right breadth and depth of inventory so that there's liquidity in that market it's really important. And they're like, we're there. We're going to support you with that proposition. And so I remember that it was time to get on with raising some money. I have another long standing uh, relationship with a gentleman uh, that runs Activision. And, you know, we were looking at both strategic sources of funding as well as institutional. And, you know, Bobby Kotick was curious and, and said, look, I think this is a really exciting opportunity. But of course, um, it's not one that I can participate in personally. Uh, you know, I, I, the opportunity needs to first go to Activision as a company to avoid any potential conflict. And said, so, of course, and he said, look, I just want to prepare you that, you know, we've looked at a lot of stuff and, you know, we've not yet acted on anything. So I don't want to mislead you. And so, you know, we we sat down and met with Time Tom Tipple and, and Humam Saknini, two just amazing guys. And we pitched them on our idea. 
and you know, soon thereafter, Bobby called and said, "All right, well, good news is that uh, they're pretty intrigued." And so, you know, the short of it is that they ended up taking the lead in our A round, and we thought that that was better to go strategic and then institutional as opposed to what is more traditional, where you go secure, you know, seed money and then institutional capital, and then later on maybe look for strategic money. You know, early the fact that they were very shrewd, but they were a little less valuation sensitive meant that we not only got the capital we needed, uh, we felt like we could optimize the implications of it in terms of dilution, but as important, have the benefit of Activision endorsing us as a team and as a company. And so it kind of felt to the people we were talking to like, you know, it had been massively de-risked. So we had all the upside of a startup, but mitigated risk because of the nature of our relationships now, both with MGM Resorts is the largest operator of these integrated resorts and and now one of the largest consumer gaming, if not the largest consumer gaming company taking an interest in us. And we didn't really promote it that much. We literally, you know, banked the money and started to assemble the team and got on with executing on our vision. And it took us about a year. We, we put together an amazing team and bared down on and executed something that felt close to our vision. But it, it was one of those situations where it was like, look, we just got to get it in the market now and learn from how it is that players are responding and consumers are responding to this proposition. Are they going to like it? Does this matter to them? Like we've added a ton of complexity to this model. And if that doesn't translate to some kind of performance, then it might be terminal. And so we we launched My Vegas on the web and you know it was nearly immediate uplift and adoption rate was great. And you know, we were there later. We didn't have the full benefit of the kind of open unfettered virality. Facebook had gotten on to the notion of let's create friction and make people pay for the players they're going to acquire. So we didn't have the same kind of extraordinary growth, but for the state of the market at the time, it was very well received. You know, it wasn't a month later that we were like, okay, we know that this is going to work, but the bigger opportunity is mobile. And so what are we going to do? We, we don't have a lot of mobile expertise in this company. And so we got to shift our focus like now. We can't wait another week, let alone a month or two. And so we literally bet the company in that moment. We took 90% of the resources and pivoted on onto immediately the creative exercise of, of defining and, you know, and designing that product as we then assembled the team in parallel and brought people in with deep mobile experience, and then got on with executing. And they executed very quickly an amazing product, uh, which we launched inside of a year. And, you know, it was for the whatever first 14, 18 months, the most downloaded product in its category. And that's when it really took off. We never really had that moment. You know, I think when you're in the cycle of it, where you, you all kind of sit around and look at one another and say, this is totally working. <laughs> you know, wow. We we never really took the time, I think, to reflect and celebrate enough and honor enough what we had accomplished because it always just felt to us like there was so much more opportunity out there to go grab and take advantage of. And, you know, and is this fleeting? Is it just kind of a momentary thing or is this going to be sustainable? And that's when we kind of regrouped and said, look, this could be much bigger than just this one franchise. And so let's really think about how we want to evolve, you know, a product and evolve the company from a single product company into a multi-product company with a thoughtful strategy. And business was 
cash flow positive in its I don't know sixth or seventh operating month, and that's with spending pretty aggressively on UA. And so, you know, we were just plowing everything back into growing. In retrospect, it's always the case from from a UA perspective. You always wish you'd spend oh, yeah. more, you know, in the moment. You know, it's like you, you just start to overthink and overanalyze, and and, and, it, and it's at a moment where you don't have a lot of cohorts that are very old or mature, and, and so you really don't know what the the projected lifetime value is of these cohorts. And here we are 10 years later, and our earliest cohorts are still have a positive slope. I mean, they're still generating more revenue today than they did then, which is really remarkable. I mean, over 50% of our revenue today is from cohorts of players that we acquired that predate 2016. So, you know, here we were, and, you know, we knew that the loyalty program was really a unique differentiator. We had a point of view on the category we were in, which was social casino and slots more specifically, which was that most of our competitors were pretty concentrated within a subcategory within slots. And when we categorized the market as wholly originated content, apps based on existing gambling IP, apps that were based on kind of core social mechanics and group play, like that was their core identity. And then games that were based on licensed entertainment IP. And we said, we want to have a position in each of those as opposed to loading up in any one of those subcategories. We're the only ones really looking to have that kind of diversity in our portfolio within the genre. And so we had MyVegas, which was our originated product. We did a great deal with Konami, the Japanese company that was growing in popularity in terms of its ship share into the market with traditional casino slot machines. And then this budding relationship with this amazing group out of Tel Aviv. Uh, it was a company called Scene 53. And they, they had one tech crunch and developed a product called Shaker, which was a social platform. You know, you'd have your avatar and define your persona. And then you would go to different social venues and engage, interact with one another. So it was a social platform, but it felt more immersive and more experiential. And so they built amazing tech. Um, but they had a tough time proving out their commercial model. And so they had decided that they needed to pivot into a different category and had decided that uh, the casino category was the right one. We had a common investor that introduced us and they said, look, you know, you guys are, are like-minded in terms of the way you think about kind of unique solutions. And so you might see if you can't collaborate on something. And so from that collaboration, you know, was born partnerships that are as important as any others that we have that, you know, been 20 years, 25 years in the making. I mean, they feel every bit as much kind of co-founders of this company and as critical to its success and performance as anybody else. And so it was just really cool. And, and from that experience of integrating them into the company, we acquired them, but, but pre-operating stage, right? Just as a development effort, we just knew that if we were really going to align our interests, we needed to be one company. And so, you know, we went and, and built Pop Slots, which was in that social category. And then, you know, we had some really interesting opportunities in the license category that ultimately we ended up not acting on because we just felt like the economics and the value creation opportunity there is much tougher. So we focused on the three categories and scaling and growing our business. And Evolving the company from one monolithic organization servicing one product to a portfolio of studios servicing multiple products where each studio shares certain values, but each of them also had their own subculture and their own identity, which really embraced who they were and helped to amplify what was unique about each of them. And then we, we kind of came to this realization, which is, man, we've been in this cycle of 
building and launching a product nearly every year to call it year and a half. And we're good game makers, right? I mean, we, we create compelling creative stuff, but you know, operating products is just wildly different. And we were like, look, we're not very good game operators. We got to focus on what it really means to service the community of players that we've assembled. We decided that we were going to suspend all the new app development and just focus on optimizing the performance of our existing products. You know, I would say that's when we kind of went through our adolescence and, and kind of matured. Let's let's be very self-aware and self-critical and, and get through that awkward stage. And let's put the right infrastructure and tools in place so that we can have the dynamism that's needed and tailor the experience to the players in the way that's needed and be able to offer the right complement of things to the right players at the right time to really optimize the conversion rates and, and monetization. You know, it was a really important period of time for us. You know, that that got us to a point or a moment in time where we felt like now we're ready to go more fully realize the bigger vision for this company, which is to take our model. You know, the, this notion of the loyalty lift that we've been promoting is very real. It drives better retention, better engagement, better monetization. Let's go apply that to these other genres and categories, recognizing how difficult it is to create really great games that resonate with your audience. And that's with us spending our whole lives on a genre. We can't just expect to go break into more genres. We got to go find those people that are just so passionate about a particular genre and then team up with them and say, look, we can help employ our loyalty model and framework in a way that prepares the market, makes for a more patient, if not forgiving market when you launch your products so that you can learn and adjust and refine what you're doing, improving your opportunity for success. And in order to really realize that strategy of expanding the portfolio of games that we publish on top of this Play Awards platform, we needed to now start looking at other companies that we could partner up with, acquire. That's what's ultimately gotten us to where we are in this moment, which is on the eve of going public, uh, which should give us the liquid currency and the capital that we need so that we can go and find really great companies. And that doesn't mean, you know, big, mature companies that are already achieving really compelling results. We're also looking for small, younger companies. They've gone through the development cycle. They're in the market with something interesting. Uh, they've not yet scaled. They may not have the resources to scale. And we can come in and say, look, we can help de-risk this opportunity and help you achieve your potential. And so there's a whole spectrum of opportunities that we think we can go now and take advantage of. And so we appreciate that, you know, that means the company is going to turn into something that's quite different from what it is today. You know, we're excited by that, and inspired by that, but also anxious and concerned and you know, we want to make sure that, that we're going to hold on to the things that make us uniquely us, but allow us to continue to create value. So that's the arc uh, of our the story <laughs> and the path we've been on. Um, so maybe I ought to pause there, see if there are yeah. questions you want me to go deeper into any one aspect of that. One thing that seemed like a recurring theme was your ability to find people and groups of people to grow your company and to, to create your companies. Why that's so interesting is because I come from kind of the opposite approach of just being a hundred percent owner of my company and from day one wanting to be that way. And some of my mentors being a very different 
philosophy towards towards the inclusion of people. So it almost seems like one of your big strengths is finding these people, bringing them in, and then really having them become owners of the company and the products. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you do to find these people? I mean, the the Monty story, obviously, was one that jumped out at me. I, I didn't know mm-hmm. that that's how you found him, but then he became a founder. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, mm-hmm. the, the company in Tel Aviv is another great example of that. Like, so what are the, some of the things that you think w- help you find these people, integrate them, and then structure tactically a a partnership that makes both groups happy. And and I, I'm assuming hedge some of it for you in case it, it isn't right. Uh, yeah. Fundamentally, it's really about achieving an alignment of interest. Everybody needs to feel like we're better off together than we were independent of one another, which means having the right conversations about, well, what are you interested in? You know, what are you motivated by? You know, I appreciate you asked the question of me. How do I go and find really great people? And it's not just me. That's where the magic is. It's that as a collection or a group of us, there's one thing that's pretty universal. They all are really genuine, caring, decent people that I, I know I can trust. They're just honest. They're They're not personally motivated. They're ambitious as all can be and intensely competitive and driven. But they're thoughtful and caring, and you know they they see the company as an opportunity to make a bigger impact, not amass wealth for themselves, which is there's nothing wrong with that and and that's certainly one of the motivations. But it's really about sharing the opportunity with other people and making a difference, you know, for anybody that we're associated with. We want everybody to feel enriched. And I hope that that's what comes through as you start to partner up with people and you're able to get past the the first few, you know, more superficial conversations, you know, and you realize, first of all, I mean, wildly different in terms of their interests and personalities, but at their core, in terms of their value system, very much the same. And that's what I think more than anything has kind of held us, held us together or in those moments that are really tough and challenging, where it feels like maybe our interests aren't as aligned as they could or should be, that we can sit down and have these conversations and be really honest, because we know that fundamentally, we're going to be fair, and we're hopefully going to get to solutions that you know just feel right for everybody. It's, it's honestly what's been really incredibly hard about this last year and a half. You know, I know that so Mm -hmm. much has been made of the benefits of working remotely and how much flexibility there is and added productivity, but it is so hard to maintain the humanity or that, that human connection. That's just so important that you have with people. And and it's important because particularly in a, in an industry that's as dynamic as ours and a, a business that's evolving and changing as quickly as ours is. You want people to be interpreting things as accurately as possible. You know, when they're thinking about why we're doing stuff, you want them to make the right assumptions or judgments. And in the absence of context, which comes from just spending time with one another, it's just so hard evaluating and and just passing judgment on what's going on with within their company so that they're left feeling you know, really safe and excited. And like, this is where I want to be. We're so resilient. You know, you just kind of adjust to the conditions. And when, when COVID started, none of us ever expected that we'd be at home for over a year. 
you just adapt and it's like chronic pain. You know, you just live with it. And until it's gone, you don't realize how consuming it is. I, I think this will feel very much the same. When we get everybody back together, connected, collaborating, it's just going to be really impactful. And I know, Brett, that's different from your model, right? You're very intentionally, as you've described, have a distributed model and and you have amazing people that work with you and, and for you. And, um, and the expectations are very clear and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that, obviously, I mean, you've been very successful with that as a model, but, you know, in, in, in a company that inherently at its core is a creative enterprise, you can't manufacture creativity. You, you, you can foster it, you know, but you can't force it. And so, so much of it just happens organically, but you, you need to create the conditions, you know, within which people are more likely to engage with one another and problem solve together and, and create new ideas together and team up. And, and so that's what I, I miss a lot. You can't, can't wait for us to get back to. Yeah. Allowing for that spontaneity. You can't schedule those types of decisions. Once we are back in offices or we are face-to-face with each other again, you mentioned rebuilding some of those connections. What do you think that's going to look like for your company? How that's going to ripple across the industry as people emerge and come back and are able to bring these more spontaneous, creative meetings with each other and build trust again? Yeah. I wish I had a very clear point of view on that. And I, I don't. Um, I have an idea about what I hope it feels like. People come back in the offices and, and we're spending a lot of energy thinking about what's the best way to approach that and how much kind of work from home flexibility you want to continue to provide. And what we hope is that irrespective of what we might prescribe, that people just feel the difference when they're together and elect to spend more time in the offices because that's where they feel that connection to, you know, their community and their company and their friends and they're stimulated and they're growing and, you know, their world is expanding. You know, that was one of the really tough things about COVID is that, you know, for people that inherently are intellectually curious, they get out and experience things, experience life and meet new people. And like their world just continues to expand. It's just really hard to end up like, Groundhog Day, just kind of like you're doing the same thing day after day after day. And so what we hope is that when people just naturally get back into the cycle of engaging with one another, it'll be so satisfying and they'll want more of it that they'll spend more time together. Mm-hmm. I know your other your other superpower is uh, sales for sure, because most most times I'm on this podcast and someone's saying something that's counter to my company. I have like a million different reasons why what I want to bring up and and encounter. But in this case, I'm actually sitting here going, you know, I think I'm ready to change things up a little bit. I think I'm ready to embrace this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm sure you experienced this in your career. Your desires as a founder, CEO, or, or leader change. I started to really make the decisions. I was frustrated in different companies when I have ideas and I couldn't execute them. And that was really a big motivator for me. And as I've now done this for five, six years, that's changing where I can already see that I want to have someone else make the decisions and see them do it. And that is starting to excite me 
more so than me being the decision maker. And so I can see myself evolving. Um, you know, I'll tell you, there's this, uh, and I know if people are in my, inside our company listen to this, they might find it surprising that this is, this is what I'm attuned to. But there's a moment in the evolution of a startup where you go from evangelizing and selling and trying to get people to buy into your vision and help execute, realize your vision to you start to attract, you know, a certain critical mass of people, each of which, you know, brings their own passion within their discipline to the seed of the idea that you had. And it evolves into something very different and it grows and it just, it turns into something that you, beyond what you could have imagined. And it's a hard thing to just let that happen you know, I, I fancy myself more creative than more purely commercially driven. And so I have very specific ideas, but I'm telling you everything that I've been a part of is, that I think has been exceptional has been about those moments where incredibly talented people have been able to apply themselves and not just fulfill a role or do a job, but practice their craft. And it just elevates. And then, you you, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're inspired and stimulated and your own thinking shifts and, you know, like the, the nature of the ideas and the evolution of them is just becomes that much more infectious. And so I'm glad to hear that, you know, maybe there's some of that coming your way, Brett. Yeah. <laughs> or more sure. of that. Something you brought up, which I think is a great point that I wanted to get a little bit more of your view on was this idea of when you were at Win using technology to enhance the abilities of humans. And I feel like I, I, I'm a big uh, fan of the Toyota way, the Toyota company, and that's a big philosophy of theirs as well, is this idea that technology basically makes humans a thousand times more powerful as opposed to technology replacing humans, which I, I think is more of an American thought process. Like, Did that philosophy go into some of your thought process with Play Studios? Sure. Um, well, it definitely affects our thinking in terms of the evolution of play awards and, and what it means to offer a loyalty program, a full-featured loyalty program, which is well beyond you know, benefits structure and a collection of rewards in these games. The whole idea is to captivate people with the games, compel them with the rewards, but then create opportunities to connect with other people and, and really promote a sense of community among them through real interactions, not just in app engaging with other people, but having uh, our partners at one of our cruise lines host uh, My Vegas at Sea, where all of a sudden we have 350 players uh, that we're hosting for you know, a four or five day cruise that's programmed you know, with all kinds of really great events. And where we're connecting with them and projecting who we are as people that are really passionate about our company and making a difference for them and where they're connecting with one another and talking about their stories and their love of the games and the love of all things related to Las Vegas, whether they're there or they're on a, you know, on a ship cruising around the Caribbean. We don't just do that like in the moment because it sounds like a cool idea. We do that as a matter of practice. I mean, we have special events, you know, manager and, and team and we execute on a, a full program like there's in-game live events there's real world events meetup opportunities and not that we enable a lot of that stuff 
for us, it's leveraging these games and these channels and the features that we've created to, to help people just connect with one another more deeply. Yeah. And I think that ties into our standard closing question. The through line that I've taken away is this focus on player experience and how they are interacting with each other, with you and the company. And I'm curious, where do you think things are going to be going in the next year, two years in terms of player models or in terms of their experiences? I'm hesitant to answer the question very directly only because I want to be careful uh, not to disclose or share things that we haven't really talked about publicly yet. Of course. I'm, on eve, I'm on the eve of being a public company, but we, we have a 10-year plan for our company. We see a, a lot of evolution in the commercial model mm-hmm. uh, in the way it is that we can monetize the content and the experiences that we're creating. And we see a lot of opportunity to not only diversify into other genres and categories of games, but do it in a way that is distinctly us by both bringing to bear the loyalty program and its mechanics, which just enhances the value proposition for consumers, but delivering experiences that are really innovative and unique executed to a very high standard. And so we have a lot of thoughts and ideas about how to do that. I mean, we're, we're just getting started. I mean, I can tell you across the studios, people are just itching to realize a lot of the ideas that we've been incubating for quite some time. Every studio has its own capacity and the latitude to go and, and incubate new ideas and then they have to go through a fairly rigorous process before they'll ultimately get approved. And it's got to fit into the overall strategic framework we have. But then we have Play Labs as well, which is really forward thinking and looking at, you know, altogether new new models and new opportunities. So I know that's a bit of a non-answer, but the future excites us. And we think, as I said, that we're just getting started. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. I I was thinking when you were talking on the iPad, the 12.9 inch Pro coming in a few weeks and it has the amazing screen and and the M1 chip and everything. And I'm super excited for where this market goes because it's, I mean, that monitor and that capability, I mean, mobile mobile gaming as we kind of know it now has just been able to unlock the power of console. Yeah. It's a really exciting. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll tease you with one idea, right? We, we have this virtuous model where people play our games and they accumulate benefits that they can go take advantage of in the real world. Well, we're, we're going to extend the experience of our games into the real world. So as people go and engage in the real world, they can accumulate benefits that they can take advantage of in our games. And so that as, a, as an idea is one that we think we're uniquely qualified to to go exploit and prove out. So we're, we're excited about that. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And thanks again to Andrew for coming onto the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait to make more of them just like this one for you. So until then, here's a little something to close us out. I don't think he I prepared like, you for the call. You didn't prepare knew, me at all. I, I was like, what? I knew. Yeah. Yeah. He is just, yeah, that was great. Uh, Great episode. I'm excited to edit it. (laughs) Let's save it.